Deborah will be here in just a bit. Excited to continue in our series. If you're a guest, first time here, uh, we are walking through just the book of 1 Timothy, going verse by verse, trying to tackle it all and, and just kind of walk through, see what God has to tell us uh, through the text of 1 Timothy. Uh, as you guys return there, I'll kind of set up kind of a uh, question to help us get rolling for today. Uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever misread, misread the tone of a text or an email? That, has that ever happened to you? You got a text from someone and you read it and you suddenly got angry. Like, what's their deal? Like, why are they, what, what's, what's going on here, you know? Or an email and you're like, I can't believe they said that. Like, that, that's so tone deaf. Do they not realize what's going on? Or the opposite way around, you sent something, whether it be a text or email, and you thought it was great, and later they're coming to talk to you and like, what's the deal? And you're like, I didn't, I didn't, sorry, I didn't realize that I made a mistake there. I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that. I absolutely hate texting or email, especially if it's something of as importance, because I will spend a long time typing it out and thinking, this sounds, this has been crafted beautifully. And then later going and apologizing. And almost every time if I have to send a text or email, I will almost always follow up like, hey, just want to make sure I didn't come across bad because I know, one, I'm a guy and I make, I'm, I'm just a guy, I'm sorry, uh, you know. I, I found out from students, for example, I used to text them and stuff when I was a student minister and say, hey, remind them stuff, why not. I remember one kid came to me before and says, why, why do you come across so aggressive in your text? And I go, how do you come across aggressive? They said, well, Bro, you, you text in all caps. I'm like, that, that seemed easier to me. Like, no, that, that's like yelling. I'm like, what? And they begin to educate me that apparently if you text in all caps, that's as though you're screaming at them. So all you older generation, if you do that, that's what they're thinking. You're yelling at them uh, going on. All that to say, <clears throat> the reason we have trouble with that is because when it comes to text messages or emails, what you lose the ability to, to give, see the inflection and body language and tone. You, you can't read their face and how it's being presented, right? Uh, often, often, and I find this true of myself with other people that text me, how I feel about them before affects how I read their text. If I've already got an issue with them or I have some prejudice or some other thing in my heart between me and them or the issue at hand, whatever they text me, I automatically go to the negative and the worst and begin going, can you believe they said that? I can't tell you how many times I've gone to my wife and go, can, look at this. Can you believe this person? And she goes, I didn't read that. And I'm like, well, you read it wrong. Um, so <laughs> I, I connect that to today's passage. Today we're, we're tackling a very difficult passage, uh, a highly controversial passage, to be honest with you. Most scholars will tell you in all of Scripture, this is probably the one of the most difficult reading, difficult interpretation, and, and more controversial text that it's facing the church today. Um, and, and so, and the problem, a lot of it is the same thing. We're separated by 2,000 years. It was written in a letter. We can't sit there with Paul as he's talking to us, his tone, his inflection, what he's trying to say. It, it's amazing. E even, even people face to face, you can still misinterpret what they say, Right? Uh, I, I do premarital counseling sometimes for couples before weddings, which that's not my skill set. So you're thinking, oh, great, Eric. I, listen, I won't help you. Um, but, but one of the things we go through is we will practice uh, uh, active listening and assertiveness and communication skills. And it's amazing, even as couples sit there and we tell them the practice of what to do, and they'll look at them, and they will say something, and the other person has to repeat what they said, but what they heard them say 
it's amazing how often they go, no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I said. And we'll show this practice of how we often misread and misinterpret what's going on. I'm just going to be honest with a lot of you. Uh, after Sundays, when y'all leave, and people come like, Eric, man, I love what you said, and you tell me what I said. And I'm like, I didn't say that. But I'm not going to tell you that right now, because I'm tired at the end of the sermon, so I'm going to smile and nod and say, we're just going to roll with it. T- today is a very difficult passage, um, but we're going to talk about it, because we want to cover all Scripture and not skip over the things that are difficult and hard for us to read. We, we want to say, well, what does this mean for us? And so we're in the series called Upon This Rock, and we're talking, and Paul's been talking about, Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor at a church called Ephesus that's having trouble. They're having internal trouble. Most scholars believe it's often among the leadership, the, the elders in the church and other people in the church. There's all sorts of issues going on. Timothy's ready to call it quits. And Paul's writing this letter to his young protege, the guy he's been mentoring, pouring into. Matter of fact, he calls him his son in faith, how much he loves him. And he's like, don't quit. And he's giving him guidance in this letter about how to run the church. This is, this is what I want you to do at your church, and you're going to be fine. And so he walks through some of the stuff. And, and so far, and I, I'm, I'm not going to do this every time, but it's important to understand for today's passage where the flow of the letter is going. Because if you isolate a text and read it alone, it's easy to read what you want into it and not see what he's trying to get at. And so in chapter 1, if you look at your Bibles, in chapter 1, Paul starts, as we talked about, Addressing the importance of, of guarding the gospel. When it comes to the message that we preach, the message that we hold dear and value, that Jesus Christ loves us, that he died on the cross for our sins, and salvation is found through him and him alone, we, we need to guard that gospel. He, he goes on in the second, the, the middle part of chapter 1, talking about not, not only should we guard the gospel, we need to celebrate the gospel. In our lives, people need to see a life transformation that's taken place in us. They need to see our wounds, our scars, and see how Jesus has held that. We need to put that on display for people to see. He continues on to say, listen, when it comes to the ministry of the gospel, we have work to do. Everyone has a role, responsibility. You need to get after it. We need to fight for the gospel in that. And so that's chapter one. In chapter two, he begins to go, now, how do we practically do it? And last week he talked about prayer. We, we start with prayer. We have to pray for the salvation of people. And today he goes into not only do we need to pray, but we need to practice living holy lives. How we live plays a significant role in how people hear the gospel. And in chapter 3, again, if you, if you don't follow the flow, you miss it, he goes into the church leadership. How, how are we going to be successful in communicating the gospel for salvation of people we pray, we live holy lives, and then it comes into how the church is run and being operated. Okay? That, that, that's the flow Paul's going at. So let's read. Let's read uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 15. We're going to read all, but we're going to tackle 8 through 15. Uh, it says this. First of all, then I urge the petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Like this is good and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator because between God and man, mankind, sorry, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. He says, for this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. Now, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Therefore, 
I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency, good sense, not, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for the woman who professes to worship God. A, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Um, I feel pretty good about that. Let's just jump to chapter 3 if you guys are cool with that. I'm not going to lie. Some of y'all know what I was teaching. I've never seen so many people giddy in my life as they were like, oh, I can't wait to see what you're going to do today, Pastor Eric. I can't wait. I've had so many people um, (laughs) with this. I I just want to say this along those lines. I'm not nervous to teach this text. It's God's word. I'm not embarrassed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't shy away from it. But what makes me nervous is just what I said before, is is people interpreting what's going on right, and I don't get to have a conversation with a lot of you. And and I hate that because your mind can run wild, and I I, I beg you not to go there just yet, to listen to what has to be said. Ultimately, ultimately, the big idea Paul says in chapter 8 through, first 8 through 15 is he gets at this, and I'll, I promise to tie it in at the end. When, when it comes to us, he's saying this, our entire being should display a holy life. Every aspect of who we are should be dedicated to God. When I say holy, I don't mean perfect, I mean set apart, different. Something looks at us and says, there, there's something different about that person, and it's because of God. Every fiber of our being should reflect that. And Paul, ultimately getting through some of these specific details, is pointing to that. And we'll get there, I promise, but I want to tackle this text. And as we tackle it, let me just set up some things to keep us in good company and in good light. First and foremost, let me say this, but before we disagree on anything we might cover, let, let's agree on a few things that I think are important. First and foremost, let's agree on this, on the inerrancy of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, given to, God by, uh, to, given to us by God. And in other words, I, I don't believe there are mistakes in the Bible. Our church holds, we do not believe there's mistakes. The Bible we have is exactly what God wanted us to have. And it's not our place to pick and choose what we want to pull out and say it's applicable and not. All of it is from God. And we have to start there. If you refuse to start there, I'm going to tell you, there's no conversation to have anymore. Because at some point, well, let me just get my next one. The second thing is this. We have to agree on absolute truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Time and time again, Jesus talks about and God talks about there is a truth and it's through God. There's an absolute truth that is true for you and true for you and true for me. It is no different from person to person. So we can't say, well, that's your truth, this is my truth. No, there is a truth in Scripture. We have to come to that. Now you say, why is that important? Because we may disagree on how to interpret this text and where it goes, but if we agree on those two things, then we can come some agreements. At some point, we can agree on something because we believe it is inerrant and there's truth for both of us in it. There, there's some common thread that we can continue to work back to. But if you refuse to accept those two things, you tell me your opinion, I'll tell you mine, and we go on with our lives. There's no more conversation to have. The last thing I say is this, our goal. Our goal is the church. Our, our goal is to spread love of Jesus Christ, to communicate the truth of Jesus Christ, to, to not be divisive. And if we take God's word and use it for that, we are abusing the word of God, okay? Um, I think I've teed up enough right there. And what I'm asking you today is this. 
is I want you to wrestle with God's word, not man. Even what I say, don't take it at face value. You wrestle with what God's word says and decide for yourself. And secondly, I say most importantly, don't, don't be divisive. It's just not, not good. So, so how do we tackle this fun text, making sense of verses 8 through 15? How, how do we interpret? Well, if we want to take it quite literally, um, if we want to interpret this text as literal, well, here's what we see in verse 8. Men, when you pray, you've been praying wrong. Every man needs to pray with their arms held high. That is how we need to pray. And so from now on, I expect men to raise your eye, arms as high as you can, and, and that's how we're going to pray and do it without anger <coughs> or ill intent. Women, uh, you need to dress more appropriately. Uh, I think Mennonite is a good place to start if you want to know the bearing of metrics of where to go at with it, because um, we don't want to be a distraction in this. Uh, make sure that your good works show. Uh, women, you just need to be quiet. Be silent in the church. Uh, don't teach a man or have authority, because Adam was formed first. But can I tell you, listen, what you do need to do is start having babies, because that's what's going to save you. Can I get an amen just from the men? Uh, no, she can Now listen, <laughs> you're getting me in trouble there. Listen, some, some people want to take this literally, but most of us would look and say, well, if we take it literally, it contradicts other areas of Scripture, right? I mean, surely God's not saying all men should be praying with their hands held high or women have to dress this certain way because he'd give more guidance for what it is. Uh, I'm, I'm not just that. I, I think it's confusing because women can't be saved through childbearing. That, that's not biblical. That, that, that's not, so, so how do we, we, we can't interpret literally. So, so it must be contextually, cultural, right? It must be contextual and cultural. So, and I think there's some bearing to some you can go in that. Obviously, men praying back in this day, when you prayed, that's how you prayed. It wasn't bow your head, close your eyes. There's nowhere in Scripture there's a mandate to do that. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, when they prayed, it would be with your hands held high in prayer. That's how they did it. No one would question this is a cultural thing. Even how women dressed back in this time, there would be no doubt this was a cultural thing going on. You even read in the letter, we know from looking in the letter that Paul is a tackling where you have widows that are raising issues in the church. They're going around and stirring stuff up by the way they dress and they act. That They are being taught that having children is a bad thing, so it's easily to connect back that there's cultural stuff going on here. I even heard one scholar, which I listened to, I've done more studying than I've ever done for a passion in preparation for this week, talking about how this was actually talking about uh, in Ephesus, there was a god, the Greek goddess Artemis was well worshipped there. And it was pointing back to this. It's all talking about Artemis and this other god that they worship. The, the, the problem is if you have to use extra curricular things outside the Bible to interpret the Bible, th then you're jumping through hoops that are never meant to be there. The early church knew that not everyone would understand that. It wouldn't make sense. Not, not only that, you have language that makes it clear that it's not just cultural and contextual. But Paul starts with talking to this. says, in every place, not just Ephesus. I want this at every church to be doing this. He even goes, when he talks about Adam and Eve, he, he ties back the mandate on, on women not teaching and stuff like this back to the creative order. So you can't just go cultural and contextual. So, so how do we do it? You, you have to interpret holistically. In other words, where, where Scripture is confusing, you have to look at other passages of Scripture to help you interpret what the Bible's saying. And if we look at other passages of Scripture, we can quickly see that even what Paul says here doesn't line up with what other Paul says if we want to interpret it that way. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's where you start. And so let's tackle this and go through, making sense of verse 8 through 15, starting in verse 8. 
Paul starts in verse 8 saying this, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Paul starts with the concern for authentic worship in the church. He says, listen, I want them to pray. When they pray, I want them to do it with what? He didn't, it's not just that they pray. It's pray with holy hands, their hands open. It's without corruption and without argument, without defilement. It's not about the body posture, but the posture of the heart that Paul's getting at. Well, why, why is that? Listen, there's nothing more repulsive than disingenuous worship. When people see, like, what you act like in here is different from out there, nothing is more repulsive. But they say, listen, you're just caring about the veneer, the front cup of the front of the look, and inside, man, you're just not acting the same. Do you want to get a taste of how repulsive that is? I remember when I was in college, I came home for a break. When I came home for a break, my family was gone. I don't remember if they went on a trip without me or a mission. I don't remember what it was, but I remember I came home. And when I came home, they'd been gone for a week, and I began doing what any college kid does, raiding the fridge, finding stuff to eat. I pour myself a glass of milk, and I'm just not paying attention to stuff. And I'm like, okay. I pour the glass, and I go to take a drink. You, you should know something. When you pour back a cup of milk, and it doesn't immediately come out. Finally, after a second, it just clumps into my mouth as it's now cottage cheese. Now, I'm in the living room trying all I can not to throw up all over the floor, and I'm running to the kitchen to get this out of my mouth as quickly as I can. Now, listen, from the look of the cup, it looked fine. It wasn't until I began to look what's inside that changed. It's the same with us with people who are inauthentic in their worship, that, that detaste, that disgust. When they see your, your hands are not holy, you live an impure life, you, you have issues with other people you don't care about, yet you still worship God like nothing's going on. He's like, this should not be so. He's caring about our authentic worship. He's telling men, listen, I want you to lead in this way. Be authentic. Don't, don't let issues become issues in church. Do it with holy hands. Don't let who you are outside this church and even around other people be different than when you come to the throne of God. He continues on in verse 9 through 10. Paul starts talking about concern for what our lives say we value. He says, also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency, good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works. Is this proper for women who profess to worship God? Now, naturally, I come to say, well, what, what's modest? What's decent? What's good sense? If you ever want to see a battle of this take place, go with us to Falls Creek when it comes to dress code with the kids every year. You're telling me I can't wear what? Who decided that's got to be the length of the shorts? Who decided? I mean, it, it becomes a thing. We're not establishing a dress code here. Paul, in their time, to give us some contextual situation, many scholars believe there may have been two different things going on. One, when it came to women braiding their hair and doing their hair a certain way, there was a certain way that prostitutes at the local temple would fix their hair that was well known by the men. That women would begin doing their hair the same way to attract attention that was like theirs. Now, now imagine coming in and seeing that and everyone's being distracted from worship because what's on their mind is what they're seeing in culture and what's going on. That, that's one possible interpretation you have going on. Another one you have, and we can clearly see in the letter of Ephesus, and Paul talks about later in this letter, about people who would come and wear such expensive stuff to show their elaborate, their wealth. That they'd put pearls and, and jewelry in their hair and wear elaborate dresses. One scholar even found that, that they had outside sources that were showing that some women would wear outfits that were worth up to, in today's market, $40,000. Imagine someone walking in here with the bling and setup of $40,000. What, what's going to happen? All the attention is being distracted on this person. 
And what kind of attention are they drawing? It's, it's not to God, it's to themselves. And Paul's saying, listen, listen, when it comes to beauty, don't, don't let it be just about your cosmetics. But when it comes to value, don't let it be by the way you look. Let it be about God. There's nothing wrong with looking nice. There's nothing wrong with coming here and wanting to have nice things. But, but when the nice things get so pursued in your life that people are clear by your lifestyle that that's what you value, there's an issue. Uh, best example, I think, is myself and Emily in the situation. I shared before when I first came as a student minister here, I used to shave all my hair off and stuff like that. I did that for like five, six years. I remember telling Emily one day, I said, I think I'm going to grow my hair out. What, what do you think of that? She goes, hmm, okay. I said, well, no, I'm thinking about, what, what do you think? Do you like my hair buzz like this? She goes, well, no. I'm like, I've been doing it for five or six years. Why have you been letting me do this? She goes, because you know how much money you've saved us by not going and getting your hair cut at a barber? I'm like, I don't care. I want to be hot. I want to be good looking. I was like, and here I was not caring about what my wife thought of me. I want other people to think I look good. I wanted to be valued by other people. I, I compare that to my wife when we dated in high school. She, she was a beautiful woman, dressed very nice. But can I tell you, she, she had standards. There was a sense of modesty about her. There was something about her that pointed me back to God. I, I remember dating other girls that I chased after different things. And when I started dating her, there, there was something about her that was different. That the word I want to use is, is holy. She cared about what God thought about her. I mean, and I found that extremely attractive, someone that had values in this sense. And it wasn't that she was ugly or she didn't care or didn't try. She did, but man, it was no doubt that this is what mattered to her. And that's what he's saying here. Listen, when people come and see you, do they see that you're someone that values so much what God thinks of me and not what the world and other people? He's trying to get them to draw their attention to that. And so he goes to verse 11 and 12. Keep going. He says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach her to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. I was really hoping at this point most of you would be asleep, so I wouldn't have to talk about it, but you're still awake, so we'll keep going. Paul here talks about his concern for how we conduct ourselves. Now, now let me just real quick address some things. This language is awkward, and a lot of people have trouble with it. Some, some of your versions might say a woman needs to be silent. That, that is a terrible interpretation of the Greek word. It is not silent. It's quietly. It's a demeanor. It's a posture that they're talking about. When it talks about quiet, it's not saying, I need you to be silent, never talking to the church. You better hush and never speak. But instead, it's talking about this. It says, I want you to be quiet and carry on into teachable demeanor and posture in the church. Being willing and able to talk. As a matter of fact, you combine it with the word submission. I love what one uh, commentary says. It says this. It says, some people get very upset when they read the entire submissiveness part. The Greek word here means to rank under. It's clear like military life that a private, for example, who ranks under a colonel is not necessarily of less value or possesses less ability than his or her superior officer. Rank has to do with order and authority, not personal superiority and inferiority. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, when you see one submitting to the other, you see it being detailed, Jesus submitting to God. God is an authority and Jesus is submitting to his plan. Jesus is no less of value or anything to him, but he submits to God's plan and order because God is a God of order. And he's telling them this. Listen, I want you to learn. I want you to come and submit to the order that is in the church. Now, now for us, we immediately hear this and get defensive. Like, man, how could, how could someone say that, tell a woman to be quiet? Who are you? It's interesting. For its time, this was extremely progressive. One commentary said this, it was a radical and liberating departure from the Jewish view that a woman were not to learn from the law. Matter of fact, one scholar named N.T. Wright that said this actually believes that's what Paul's saying here is that Paul's trying to say that they should be allowed to learn. 
I don't think that's necessarily just what he's saying. But it's clear for us who think that Paul's a misogynist and that back in this time it was all anti-women. You don't have to look very far outside of the Bible of people who were writing about the church in the day to find out that's not true. People in its time who made fun of the church used to make fun of the church was just made up of three things. Women, slaves, and children. That's the only people they can attract. Obviously, they had women coming in. As, as a matter of fact, one of the people who made fun of the church, here's what they said back in the time of the church. said, Christians show and they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. This is someone back in the time making fun of the church. And so women who felt like this was misogynistic and against them sure missed the memo because that's who they were attracting and, and flows to this church and what's going on here. But Paul's not talking about submission in the sense of you are less and less equal, but to an order that takes place. That there's an order in the church that we need to be respectful and listen. At the same time, we need to come be willing to learn and listen to it. L- let me illustrate like this. In 2019, I moved from being the student minister to the pastor. And the first year we came up came to Falls Creek. I'd been the student minister here for four or five years. Everyone used to ask me what's coming up, and Falls Creek coming up, and we had a student minister named Ian. It was his first year coming. Imagine the intimidation. He'd, I'd, had, I'd had like 10, 15 years of student ministry under my belt. This was his first, and he's going. He's an authority. It, it, it's his opportunity. As a matter of fact, to prepare, I made this shirt up so everyone could know what was going on. Here's what the shirt I made. Nick, not in charge. Hashtag ask Ian. I wore that to Falls Creek so when kids came, I'd go, not in charge. Don't talk to me. Talk to Ian. Listen, here's the thing. At the end of the day, <coughs> I had experiences. I had giftedness. I had opinions on what was going on, but Ian was in charge. And, and out of respect for his position and his authority, and even allowing him opportunities to lead, I took on the position of a backseat learner. I didn't overrule him. I didn't come say, no, this is how you should do it. I'm your boss. No, no, it's like Ian's in charge. But Paul's talking about this. It's not the fact that we be silent, that we don't talk. But, but it's a respecting the order that God has placed in the church that he's pointing to. And he's asking women to do this. And he keeps going in verse 12 to explain even more. He says, not only this, what does he say? I do not allow women to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. And he talks about not allowed to teach or have authority. Those two words are tied together. When he, when he talks about teaching, it's, Paul's talking about a certain kind of teaching. How, how do I know this? Because we look at Scripture holistically. You see in other places, Paul says it's okay for women to teach. It's a certain type of teaching. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, Paul wrote that, let me tell you. Paul encourages older women to teach younger women. He encourages it. Do it. We want you. You have a gifting. Teach them. In, in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, it's Apollos, one of the early leaders of the church, who was taught by a woman and discipled by a woman. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul encourages women to pray and prophesy in the church. If Paul's saying, now be silent, but here, there's an inconsistency. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul praises Timothy's own grandmother and mother for instructing Timothy in the way to go. Last one, Colossians 3.16, Paul encourages the entire church including the women, to let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so when it comes to it, it's not that women can't teach in the church. There's a certain type of teaching that's tied to authority in the church that Paul's saying is reserved for men is what he's talking about here. So if anybody's like, well, women can't teach. No, you, you have gifting in this. You, you should use it. 
but in certain contexts. The second thing you understand is it's not just a certain kind of teaching, but it's a specific defined context. I'm going to read a commentary. I love they said this. It must be noted that in these instructions, they have nothing directly to say about teaching and authority in the marketplace or the academy or the public square. They are talking about the order in the church. Neither do these directives allow any man within the church by virtue of his gender to exercise authority over women in the church. In other words, people who want to take this passage, it's like women can't be bosses in the corporate world. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about specifically in the context of the church. I would tell you this, Paul's not even talking about the home right here. There's different places you can go to, but Paul clearly is going through this whole letter talking about the context of the church. He starts talking about the church, the church, then he jumps to home and goes back to the church. It makes no sense. He's following the line that in the context of the church, there's a certain type of teaching tied to authority reserved for a certain type of man, and not all men. That that's what Paul is getting at. And given what comes in chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, this teaching and authority seems to be most clearly connected to the office of an elder. And we'll talk more about it. Look at it. Now, 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 why is it? Well, Paul goes in verse 13 through 14 and begins to explain why. He said, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He starts by God talking about God's order. God has a created order. All, all throughout scripture, you see firstborns having a different responsibility and, 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 order and uh, responsibility when it comes to creative order. What one commentary says this. It says, firstness connotes authority throughout the scriptures. Being the firstborn conveys the privilege of being heir and ruler. God could have created Adam and Eve at the same time, but he did not. He created Eve for Adam. She was created to be his helper. The unchanging fact is that God desires that order to creation be reflected in the church in Lord Jesus Christ. There's an order. In verse 14, he goes even more and says, listen, what's going on here? When Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and transgressed. I've heard guys try to use this kind of tongue in cheek. It was Eve's fault. We'd never had it. If she hadn't bitten that fruit, it was all her fault. I think what's interesting, he's not talking about how it's Eve's fault. He's saying, listen, Eve was deceived. Where was Adam in the garden? Right there with him. If Eve was deceived, what was Adam? Adam wasn't deceived. He willingly went forward with knowing it was wrong. Full well, I'm breaking God's order, command, but I want to do it anyways. But he's saying, listen, all this, because we broke God's order and we broke from the saying, saying, we're going to do it our way, chaos ensued. I think that's what I'm saying. If you want to see chaos ensue, do it your way. God has a plan. God has an order. Look at verse 15. I'm going to tie this all back together real quick. Stay with me. This is one of the most difficult passages because it's just odd. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good work. He goes from Adam and Eve and talks about the fall and creation, how this was part of God's original design from the beginning, and yet we, we... we messed it up. They messed it up back then. But she will be saved through childbearing. There, there are three different interpretations I found. One is this, that, that when she, we know that the mortality rate of women when it comes to childbearing is extremely high. Some try to say that's what it's saying here, that if you have faith and believe in God, and you do that, when you give birth to a child, you will be preserved, you'll be saved through childbearing. We know that's not true. 
There are women that still struggle with that and still die to this day. That, that's not, I think, a fair interpretation. A second interpretation some people try to say this is this. That, that yes, there are jobs that are reserved specifically for men in the church, but women have a significant responsibility when it comes to the family and raising children in the Lord. And I think there's truth to that. And many of us hear that and we get so offended and go, so you're saying my job is to be with the kids? And listen, we, we can take that as a slight and a beat down. I, I would not be here today if it were not my mother and what she did to me, raising me in the Lord. The, the intentional influence you have. The, the greatest mission field we have is across the hall down there. 90% of people come to the Lord when they're a child. And we say it's insignificant, act like it doesn't matter. And you're missing the greatest mission field we have. And Paul might be here saying and pointing to talking about, listen, you want to talk about something men can't do that women can't? They, they give birth to children. They do a great job in raising them what's going on. And, and it would make sense, you see, in other parts of the letter where widows are being taught that it's bad to have children. And Paul's trying to raise it up and elevate it. That might be a possible explanation. But the one I believe, to be honest, is, is not that, even though that may, could be true. I, I think it's more so it's pointing to a specific child. He says, but she will be saved, be saved through, uh, I think more proper rendering is the bearing of a child. We, we know people are not saved from having, through having children. But we do know there was one child that brought salvation to mankind. And Adam had no part in that. It was the son of God, Jesus Christ. I, I personally think that's what he's pointing to. He's setting up Eve and talking what's going on. He's like, listen, you see this, but, but don't forget what came through Eve and through her. It, it was salvation to all mankind. It points back to what? As long as we what? Continue in faith, love, and, and holiness. I, I personally think that's what he's pointing at. Every scholar I'll tell you right now will tell you this is an awkward and difficult. Every single one of those have some sort of issue in the interpretation. So, so let, let's tie a knot on all this. Where, why, we, where in all this might we disagree is where do we land? And when it comes to the two different views of this, there are two different views when it comes to this. One is egalitarian. The second is complementarian. Complementarian says this. They believe that God created all men and women equal, but yet he created a specific and unique to have different roles. You see it in the church. You see it in life to complement one another. God created gender for a purpose to be different and separate and to have specific roles. And a lot of people will point to this text. Egalitarians, in other words, will point to something else. They'll, they will agree, say, yes, we're all created equal, but however, uh, they go a step further that men and women are considered equal in their role and cap capabilities as well. And in other words, there are no gender restrictions on what roles men and women can fulfill in the church, home, or society. They would believe any position in the church can be held by a man or woman at the home. There's not uh, a father's role and a mother's role. They, they hold to, to those two things. Now, as you can imagine, people can go to far-out extremes. And people who hold to the egalitarian role, I'll be honest with you, go to Galatians chapter 3 as their text for support. In Galatians chapter 3 is what it says this, just stay, bear with me. He says, for those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then your Abraham's seeds heirs according to the promise. So it's just saying because of Jesus, he takes away all that stuff. I'll be honest with you, I personally believe that passage is not talking about roles, it's talking about value in God's eyes. I would agree that there is no one that is above, we are all equal in God's eyes. And now I say that, you can have a different interpretation, that's okay, we may have this, but I'm going to tell you, North Point and even Baptists historically are unapologetically complementarian. 
We at some point say there is a specific role in the church that Paul seems to be alluding to that is reserved for men. You might not like it. I'm going to be honest, I don't like it at times. But it's not my job to decide what's right or wrong with this. Now, now how that goes is not up to me even to decide. It's up to the church side. What does that mean? Can a woman preach? Well, we as a church got to say, can a woman serve as an elder? Somewhere on the spectrum of women cannot be an elder to women should never talk at all in church. We, we, if we agree, it has to land somewhere on it. As a church, we land on saying, listen, a woman cannot serve as an elder and comes to preaching as well. And again, it's the church to decide on those things. Now, now let's just... Let's just, let's just call, call it what it is. Why is this view so difficult to swallow? Well, one is this, because we see gifted women teachers and leaders. There, there are women in this church that are far better teachers than I am. No doubt about it. There are women in this world that are far better leaders too. It's not a question of that. But, but you have to understand, giftedness doesn't supersede qualifications. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean this is what God had intended for you. Let me illustrate like this. When I was in third grade, I had a teacher named Ms. Campbell. She was awesome. She was very motherly. And, and, and apparently she was with all the class. I never forget many students, including myself, made the mistakes calling her mom. Can I tell you, nothing's more embarrassing than calling your teacher mom. Hey, mom. And she would play it off. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Now, now listen, she was gifted in that way. There's nothing wrong, man. It is a great quality to have for her to have those motherly qualities and stuff. I imagine if Ms. Campbell said, listen, I am your mother. It's okay. You keep calling me that all year long. There, there's something wrong with that, right? Because that's not her qualifications. That's not her position. There's nothing wrong with women having giftedness, being able to teach and lead, and it's needed in the church. But just because that had it does not make it okay and disqualify what God has said about it. The second reason why it's so hard to swallow and say is this men are lazy. I'm just going to be honest. Men have abdicated their responsibility in the church. Men, if you feel like you're getting kicked, you are right. I'm just being honest. Every church I've been at, man, women lead, do so much in the church that we could not survive without them. Some of the men, I'm like, we could probably make it by quite a while without you. And it's sad because you have been given a responsibility to lead and, and to be an example, and you've abdicated that responsibility just as Adam did, sitting there on your lazy hands doing nothing. And it's time you step up, and it's no wonder women and people like me look and go, these are my options? I'll tell you who I want to go with. But here's the day, at the end of the day, it's not my decision to decide what's right. It's my decision to say, listen, this is what God has called to. We're going to stick with this. And at the end of the day, men, you need to step up. Start taking your responsibility seriously. It's disappointing to see it. And so I pray we would. And so let me conclude with this. I know I've gone over, but it's a heavy topic. What, what should we all be able to agree on when it comes to this text? We should all be agreed that our salvation should have an effect in every aspect of our life. Regardless of what you, if you're complementarian, egalitarian, wherever you stand, regardless we should be able to walk away with this truth, that every aspect of my being should be affected by being saved. J Jesus Christ affects my attitude, it affects my relationships, it affects, it affects my behavior, it affects my values, and for each one of those things, can I tell you, like, God has a desire and plan that he wants for each of us. And they all play a vital role in being a witness to the world. And we, we can either do it God's way, or, or we can do it the way we want to do it. It's up to you. Our, our entire being should display a holy life. And I think we struggle because we think, man, as long as we win, that's all that matters, right? When I was in high school, I played from my last story. When I was in high school, 
I played for Mustang. We were terrible, by the way, in case you want to know. This is not a humble brag. We were the homecoming team for everybody. Uh, everyone beat us. I remember we had one game we were playing. We had just, my, between my sophomore and junior year, we had got a new coach. We had lost a coach that had been in school for like 11 or 15 years. Everyone loved him, a new coach, first time ever. And, and we're in this situation, and we have a game. We're at the end. We get the ball. We're, down, we're uh, tied, and we have an opportunity to win the game. And our new coach calls a play. He comes, and he draws up a play, and all of us are like, God, that seems like a dumb play. We really don't want to do that. We had this play we used to run back in the day called Y. Man, if we just we know if we ran this play our old coach had, we could win. And so after the coach called the play, we walked off and the five of us held together like, coach is an idiot, you know what he's talking about, let's run Y. Okay, and so we go out there, we run our play, we score, we win the game. We're all excited, we go in and we're all hooping and hollering. And our coach goes, what was that? We're like, coach, it doesn't matter, we won. It doesn't matter, we won, that's all it's about. He's like, what did you do? He's like, well, coach, from last year, like, this was his play. And he got so incredibly angry with us. And I tell you, I didn't understand it for a long time. Looking back now, we were so fixated on it. It was just about winning. It really doesn't matter how we do it. Do you know the rest of that year, we had issues with leadership in the team. Guys always thought they knew it was best and had some way of how they wanted to do it. Coach didn't know what he talking about. All that we fought, we, we had all sorts of issues, and guess what? We were terrible because of it. And I'm, I'm telling you this, when it comes to leading the church, sometimes we get so fixed, it doesn't matter how you do it, as long as you win. And you have churches in our community that are doing it their own way and calling it okay. And it's not glorifying God, it's glorifying them. And I'm not saying, man, if I had the reins, I, I, I tell you how I'd want to do it differently. But God has not given me nor you that authority. And so we have to set back and say, what does the Bible say and how am I going to do it? And so I guess if anything I'm calling you to that is, will, will you be obedient in your life? Not, not just with what I'm saying, but just to give your life to God and be completely holy in every aspect. Not decide how you want to do it. And so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to have a, just a time of response and prayer. I'm going to have elders come forward. Maybe you need, a, you need someone to pray for. You're struggling with what I've talked about today, and this is kind of painful. You're not too happy. <laughs> or maybe you're convicted because you realize, man, you, you have not stepped up, and today's the day you need to respond to that. So with your head bowed, eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to do this. Like, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? I'm going to ask you this, your head bowed, eyes closed, asking this, God, what, what today am I frustrated by what Eric said, and what are, what, are, what are you trying to teach me through that? Am I willing to do it your way, God, or am I going to do it my way? And I submit my life to you, God, to be holy in every aspect. Father God, I love you so much, and I pray that what I said today... Um, 